Hello, everyone. Welcome to another wonderful edition of the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. I'm your co-host, Dominic Vogel, and joining me, as always, is Christian Redshaw. Christian, how are you doing today? Well, to use your word, I'm doing wonderful. How are you, sir? Um, I feel like we're going down the path of alliteration, but I'm also wonderfully wonderful as well. Awesome. Um, I'm curious who our guest is, but I guess I'll be the one who says who he is. Yeah, why don't you tell us? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is uh, Curtis Core from TELUS. I believe he is the manager of their internal uh, incident response team. So I don't think we've re- ever really had a chance to talk uh, IR on the show, so this should be fun. Hopefully we can talk about digital forensics and the criminal, cyber criminal underworld and get into the nitty gritty. Absolutely. Stay tuned. TELUS has been partnering with Canadian organizations to support their cybersecurity needs for over 20 years. As a cybersecurity leader and national telecommunications service provider, TELUS is well positioned in the industry to offer a unique perspective on the security threats and trends that businesses face today. TELUS, cybersecurity that works for you. We would like to thank TELUS for being an amazing sponsor of the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to join you. My first question so that our viewers can get to know you a little bit is you work for TELUS on the security incident response team. Uh, what does that mean for those that, that are not familiar with that term? Sure. So I'm the incident response team manager for the TELUS Cyber Defense Center. So we're the uh, the internal corporate security cyber incident response team that does like digital forensics, um, phishing response, um, tabletop exercises, um, pretty much anything, uh, any any sort of cybersecurity incident that occurs um, within TELUS, we're, we're the first on the scene, so to speak. Interesting. So how does one get into such a position, into such a career path? What's your, what's your backstory career-wise? Um, sure. So just uh, probably uh, I, started, I started my career in IT, of course, like a lot of um, security people. You sort of do your, uh, your rounds um, as a server administrator, as a network support person. And around uh, 2008, I, I kind of switched over into cybersecurity. I started working as an associate information security analyst. And um, um, oddly enough, I think about two or three weeks into my career was, um, was if you recall, uh, the Conficker worm, which was one of the, not the first, but one of the first um, Windows worms that had sort of a, ma- a global impact and uh, it's just one of the one of the notes from the the beginning of my career that I that I always sort of remember. Um, so starting from there in 2008, I continued my career uh, working for different crown corporations uh, in British Columbia, um, and then spent a time at Telus um, as an incident responder for a number of years, which would bring you up to now, which is um, I'm now the I'm leading that team and um, supporting the cybersecurity incident response for the corporation. Very cool. Very cool. So let's get into the nitty gritty of cyber incident response. And let's take a scenario of an, of a cybersecurity incident. A business is hit by ransomware or, or some nasty cyber attack. What is that experience like for a business leader and organization uh, going through that experience? What are the feelings? What are people saying? What is that? What is that like? 
Um, when it occurs, it's, well, it's, you know, it's depends on how prepared you are, I guess, right? So if you're a mature organization and, uh, you've, you know, you've spent the investment on your security controls, um, you've developed incident response plans, uh, maybe it's not so bad. Um, however, I know that um, with ransomware groups in, in this day and age, with all their capabilities and, um, and their service model, which is um, like a full-time job with uh, lots of support and um, advanced techniques, um, it's, it's a formidable task. Um, so my feeling is, is when you're, when you're presented with um, that scenario, even when you're well-prepared, um, you know that you're going to be in for it. You're going to be um, working hard and you're going to be doing everything you can to, um, to uh, mitigate the impacts, get your business back up and running and, uh, you know, obviously get the, um, these people out of your networks. For sure. Good. Curtis, you know, you, you mentioned the word preparation. Um, we want to peel back on the, the layers on that. Um, what are some basic starting points that let's just say an average smaller midsize organization can take to be more prepared from an incident response perspective? Yeah. So I did reference the incident response plan, which, I mean, I think people talk about that a lot, but, um, it really is a key, a key, um, item to have in your repertoire and to have it tested out. So to, to know exactly, um, who to call, who to contact the different teams in your organization. So, you know, you have legal, you have communications, you might have privacy people. You're definitely going to want to have all of that ready to go. And particularly, uh, with ransomware, because it's, you know, uh, occurring so often these days, you'll want to have an incident response plan that um, that considers some of the scenarios you might be faced. So you'll want to know what you're going to do um, if you're faced with that scenario and if you're going to pay the ransom, if you're not. Um, so these sort of scenarios, you'll want to have those anticipated. Um, you also want to consider um, if your network is compromised. So if your network is compromised, how are you going to respond if um, they're watching everything and listening to everything you're doing. So also consider some sort of out of band or disaster recovery capabilities so that you could actually bring your business back up and running, um, even if your main like uh, systems are not uh, available or you cannot communicate over those systems uh, securely. Uh, that's really insightful, Curtis. And one of the things I wanted to better understand, or at least get, get more um input from you on there was, you know, you mentioned the need for this to be truly collaborative. You mentioned, you know, legal PR, what have you. Um, how do you make that case? Let's say there's a business owner or CEO who says, oh, the, the instant response, that's for IT. IT owns that. What What's some retorts uh, or reasons why uh, we, you know, we can educate that, that CEO that it should be a, a truly collaborative approach? Yeah, well, that's, that's all part of the testing. So, um, you know, getting that, getting that CEO involved in the preparation is, is going to be the best way because you certainly don't want to be in the middle of the incident. And this is the first time you have to ask those questions or, um, cause, because there really is no time at that point to be working out the details of like who's going to be involved and who's going to be responsible. Um, you really want to have that all ironed out ahead of time. So it's really um, a worthwhile investment to do some, some sort of, um, uh, instant response plan. And then of course the testing it and making sure that it's going to work and it's considering all the potential, um, 
um, scenarios you might be faced with. Um, you, you mentioned testing and, and, and testing is a bit that's um, so critical and you, you, you've definitely um, um, pointed at that. And I, I think about uh, a prospect that, that we once had where they reached out to us in the middle of a ransomware situation and they said, well, will we have backups? Can you speak to our IT service provider? And we spoke with the IT service provider and he was like, oh yeah, we have backups. You know, our backups are fantastic. And I said, well, why are we talking with you then? What's the problem? He said, well, um, we never tested the backups and the last good backup is over a year old. <laughs> um, so, I mean, in, in terms of testing, what are some leading practices? Should it be tested every month, every quarter? What, what do you see as being leading practices? My team operates at multiple levels. So we do, within our team, we do, we do testing of our different playbooks. But at an organizational level, um, certainly, at least once a year, you need to be doing what we can, what we call an executive level tabletop, where we're testing out those, you know, exactly that scenario where you're going to have to bring on um, the full support of the organization to restore services. So, um, I think at, at a minimum, it's one year, and there are actually many many um, audit and insurance cyber insurance requirements to do so now. So it's it's really um, it's really in, in your best interest to do it at least once. Absolutely. So let's switch over from the purview of TELUS, from the purview of the organization and look through the eyes of cyber criminals here. Who, who are the people that are targeting these organizations? Who are they targeting and what are they after? Why is this happening? Yeah. So, of course, the, you know, who are these ransomware groups? Well, there's a lot of them now. So, I, you know, I know um, most most of this began um, in Eastern Europe and Russia, but it's really progressed to a global a global thing. So, r- ransomware is a service now. Um, the model is is sort of um, repeatable. They can branch this out now to different uh, organized crime groups. Um, so it's really a global thing now. I, I don't. I don't believe it only occurs in Russia or China, like many people would like you to believe. Um, I think there's a a broad um, effort towards it because it is reasonably well developed. Um, it is very effective, and um, most you know small and medium sized companies are probably not uh, best prepared to defend against it. Um, and you know, for me, the the real key here is why is it so popular now, and why are they? Why is this threat sort of expanding? It's because of, um, of course, because of cryptocurrency and the ability for them to make a profit without the um, um, without any trace, right? So anti money laundering uh, processes aren't aren't working effectively against uh, cryptocurrency. Um, you know, Western governments aren't prepared or haven't been able to respond effectively to protect private companies either. So I kind of see it as um, a threat for the next, uh, for the foreseeable future where private companies are going to have to really make that extra investment and protect themselves um, as our governments get up to speed on uh, implementing um, financial like anti-money laundering controls and uh, protection for um, for our networks, right? Mm-hmm. Love it. I love the answer. And I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, if I'm a company and I'm finding myself in the crosshairs of one of these uh, organizations, um, you know, at what point should I engage a digital forensics expert and how do I engage one? 
Yeah, actually, that that actually almost takes me back to the instrument response plan. So you also have to consider what, yeah, what are your internal capabilities, and also know like when is that tipping point where you need to um, where you need to cut over to um, engage like a instant response retainer, because you, you do have to consider that like at some point you might have security people in your organization. But um, once the uh, the impact and the damage to the company is is too high, um, the scope is too big. You should have that plan. You should know what that is um, and be able to make that switch over quickly. So having an incident response team on retainer, being able to bring them bring them in within like two to four hours is is critical because it's going to be something um, you're probably going to need their help. And the sooner you can get somebody in there to contain an incident. Uh, it, um, the quicker you're going to be able to get back into business and the less um, amount of financial damage. Curtis, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, um, let's say we look at the big data breaches over the past 10, 15, 20 years, um, wh which companies have responded well uh, and which ones have not. Uh, and and you know, I, I think about like maybe like Equifax as an example, you know, the CEO, he came out and the first thing he did was blame some poor IT intern. I would, you know, file that under poor response. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, what, what do you see as being, you know, a good response versus what a bad response looks like? Yeah, for sure. And that's, and that is part of a good plan, right? Is so to, to understand like who can craft the communications, who is going to be able to effectively communicate um, what has occurred and, and then, and, be, and then being as transparent as you possibly can be. So I think um, laying blame, especially early on is, is not going to help anybody. Um, it would be better to spend a little bit more time to understand what happened and then give, um, give your customer the most transparent sort of view of what has happened and do everything you can then to, to protect them. Because if there is like a customer um, information involved in, in an incident like, um, like we've seen recently, um, you, they're going to need additional help. And, and, and uh, those organizations have to take care of them, I think. Agreed. Um, you know, no organization is 100% uh, secure. But when it comes to, you know, retrofitting cybersecurity after the fact for somebody that didn't have good security protections in place after after a breach, how do you at, at TELUS and in your position handle that process from there? Are you able to kind of hold their hand and go, okay, well, here's why it happened and here's what we need to do proactively moving forward to reduce the likelihood of it happening again and the impact if it if something does happen? Yeah, absolutely. So like as part of incident response and it's it's always um, like I have two goals for my team, which is um, when we're brought into a security incident, of course, we want to contain it. Um, we want to stop the bleeding, so to speak. Um, but then once you've gotten to that point and you've started to do your forensics and you're starting to move to like a recovery phase, you're you're making notes of um, of all the things that you're seeing that could be improved. So once we get through that recovery process and we bring things back up. And some of those things, sometimes when you're re recovering um, from an incident, you're implementing improvements as you go. But if you don't, you're, a team like mine will always be making recommendations and making notes. And then once you get to a point where you're back up and running, um, anything that you haven't resolved, any sort of security gaps that we're missing, um, those would always be something that we would action that would be escalated, that would be um, put in place so that we don't have a repeat of whatever occurred, right? 
And, and I guess, Curtis, there, I mean, is that something that you could refer to as like a lessons learned type uh, element of the process? Yeah, of, of course. Uh, a post-incident uh, follow-up action items, uh, lessons learned is um, exactly part. Of, it's part of uh, the role of an incident response team to make sure that our inputs are going in there so that um, that we don't have a, an incident to repeat itself. Curtis, what, when you're looking, when you're experiencing these incidents with with uh, with companies, what are the main weaknesses that you're seeing? What what are they not doing that they should be doing in in most cases? Yeah, so I, you know, it's quite a few things, but maybe I'll just focus on a few that I I find I find to be critical. I mean, everyone, there's a lot of excellent controls you can put in place, but what are ransomware actors and like what's the what's the the um, the attack vector these days is. Um, of course, um, it comes through phishing, and my my team has a particular sort of perspective on that because we we on a daily basis see waves of different phishing campaigns, and we see how these um, actors, including the ransomware actors, are using uh, phishing emails to to actually um, enable these intrusions. So, why do those phishing emails work? Um, well, they work because because uh, the technology that they're faced with are or some of it is legacy. So like a legacy, like email, email security appliance, it's, it's a needed security control, but it's not up to the, the task of um, the latest phishing techniques. So um, everyone sort of knows about business email compromises. Well, an email appliance isn't going to be able to protect you if the person sending the email comes from a legitimate organization, um, because it can't possibly know that that organization is already compromised. Um, so one of the things that we like to do at Telus is we have a pretty vast um, security awareness program for phishing. So we educate our team members to, um, to identify fishes. We constantly um, run simulation, simulations towards them on a weekly basis because we, we consider them to be like the last, um, the human firewall, the, the last the sort of um, piece of the chain that can, that can protect the organization. Now, technology-wise, um, of course, um, Threat intelligence has become extremely important as well. So in an organization, I, I really do believe that monitoring your domain, monitoring your email addresses for all your team members is critically important because you'll want to know um, the moment that occurs because you won't have a lot of time from the time that uh, one of your email addresses is exposed to somebody on the dark web purchasing it and then potentially using it to infiltrate into your network. Curtis, this is just really, really insightful because I mean, I don't think to date we've really had someone talk on the incident response side. So I mean, this is a, it's a shame it took us a hundred episodes to get here, but <laughs> this is really, really interesting. I only have one more question. Um, when we're ta talking about instant response. Uh, I mean, there's some organizations that treat it like a checkbox compliance driven uh, activity. Um, what would you say to those organizations who aren't investing in it for the right reasons that they're treating it more like shelfware? Um, how do you motivate them to make sure that they go beyond just the compliance checkbox mentality? Um, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, <laughs> um, it, it is, you know, most organizations, well, a small to medium-sized organization might not necessarily have a, a dedicated incident response team. Um, but from my message to them would be that, you know, back back in the day, like several years ago, um, you know, threats, I mean, malware and phishing, it's been around for a long time. Um, but before you might have, you might have weeks 
days, weeks, or months to to identify something and to remediate it. Most most sort of security response security uh, incidents r- resulted in maybe a machine being wiped or um, the impacts weren't great. But uh, in this day and age. Um, in particular, ransomware actors are going from compromising an email address to um, to gaining access to your network within hours. And fully understood that some organizations don't have the capacity to have an incident response team on staff, but they certainly could um, look into investing into a managed detection and response service. So having a team watching uh, watching for this sort of activity for you if you can't um, afford the investment of a team or having a team on site because that um, that what we used to call dwell time has reduced from what used to be months um, down to hours now. So it's critically important to be able to respond quickly. Uh, Curtis, um, this has been absolutely insightful. So many uh, good truth bombs and uh, <laughs> insights here. I know our, our viewers and listeners are going to come away um, enlightened, possibly a little scared, but uh, enlightened nonetheless. But uh, Christian and I are very grateful to you for carving time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule for, for someone in your position. So thank you again for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Curtis. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Stay safe. You as well. Krish and I will be right back to wrap up today's episode. Christian, that was a heck of a conversation. I think uh, Chris uh, was very, very insightful in talking about instant response there. Well, you know, he's on the front lines, right? So I wanted to really ask him what he advises, what he sees that is missing in the cases that he works with. And he just gave a couple of practical tips or really practical takeaways here that really aren't incident response, but they're more on the proactive side. Uh, Phishing campaigns, uh, awareness training, that people component is so important. Uh, And then, you know, your domains uh, and your, your email addresses, are they on uh, the dark web, are they being circulated and talked about among cyber criminals? So it's good to be doing both of those things and being aware on both of those levels. Uh, absolutely. You know, and the thing I love what Curtis said really quite succinctly was have a plan and test it. You know, So I think that there were some really good clear call to actions for uh, hopefully some, uh, many of our listeners and viewers uh, to, to take away some uh, good wisdom there from Curtis. Absolutely. And we want to extend a special thank you to Curtis and Telus for uh, uh, joining, um, having him join us on the, on the podcast today. Uh, as well as spend a, extend a special thank you to our loyal listeners and uh, viewers. Thank you for joining us each and every week uh, for previous uh, episodes. Please do uh, check on our YouTube page uh, as well as uh, any of your favorite podcasting platforms. But until next time, be well, be safe, and we'll catch you again on the Cybersecurity Matters podcast. Mm-hmm.